Well, I chose, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6 in one verse of 7. I just chose these first nine verses thinking that it would help us feel the, the drama of what's happening. But I think I should just have Jonathan read my whole sermon. <laughs> and that would really help us to feel the drama of what is happening here. Um, we are continuing in 1 Samuel, and I am excited uh, at just kind of what we've heard so far. Um, excited to be part of this rotation. And um, this is the largest section that we'll look at. So this is the, the most chapters. So well, I should say the, f- the first sermon was really about First and Second Samuel. But apart from that, this is the largest section. So there's a lot here, and there's a lot we won't have a chance to look at. So I would encourage you uh, to be reading through 1 Samuel as we are preaching through it because there's, um, there's a lot that, that the author is showing us and, and teaching us and we'll just get a, a glimpse of it today. So let me, let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it teaches us who you are, that we might know you and that we might worship you rightly, that you might show us ourselves both the things that we see in ourselves that we don't like and the things that uh, we need to see in ourselves and repent from. Father, I pray that as we open your word today, as we look at it and as we meditate on it, I pray, Father, that you would do your work in our lives. Father, we acknowledge that it is by your mighty hand that the gospel goes out. It's by your mighty hand that you have drawn us together as your people. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would put your hand of mercy upon us. That you would show us yourself that we might worship you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see uh, throughout the scripture that the revelation of God is intended uh, to show us who he is, to show us ourselves, um, that we might worship him for who he genuinely is. But the problem is, I think often we forget who God is, and we forget who we are. It can be that our circumstances uh, around us uh, become overwhelming, and they cause us just to look inward, and so we fail to see what God is doing around us. It could be that that things are weighing so heavily upon us that we feel that God must be silent or absent. The circumstances of our lives are often overwhelming. Barry talked about our need for prayer, and that is a true need. And one of the reasons is because in prayer, as we come before God, what we're doing is we're acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging our need for him. So you might find yourself uh, in a situation uh, that you just feel stuck, right? It, it seems unjust. Maybe others are coming against you or speaking, as we talked about the ninth commandment, falsely about you. It may be that you're stuck in a pattern of sin that you just can't seem to shake. As it leaves you riddled with guilt and shame. God reveals his unrivaled power and authority to us in his word so that we might know him, so that we might break out of our circumstances uh, the things that that seem so real to us and see the true reality of who he is and what he is doing. 
As we look at the context of the passage that we're looking at this morning, uh, Jonathan read the first half of verse 1, as he should have, but, but it, I want to back up just, just a little bit um, and, and show that this is where Samuel has been established as the prophet of the Lord in Israel. So uh, if we look, then we can see in 1 Samuel 3.21, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open uh, because we're not going to have a chance to read through everything, but I am going to point to some things. So 1 Samuel 3.21 says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. The text tells us that that, uh, the Lord was with him and he let none of his words fall to the ground. So we have a prophet that has come into Israel or has been raised up within Israel. He will be um, a main character. And yet, starting with the the second half of verse 1, he is absent. And so the whole text that we'll deal with, the main character is really the ark Samuel's around, but uh, he's missing from our narrative. And I think it's for a reason. I think we have seen, uh, well, I'll just let the text tell itself. All right, so uh, what I think we'll see here in the text is that that God is uh, taking Samuel out for these chapters because he wants to show that Samuel is a servant of God. And so God is going to be revealing his own power and authority. It's a power that is unrivaled, not because of Samuel, but because of who he is. And so really these next chapters in many ways, if you're familiar with theater, they kind of read like a play, a play with a few different acts. And so chapter four, we're going to see two of those acts play out. And we're going to spend the majority of our time in chapter four. In fact, we're going to spend the majority of our time in the the first half of chapter four because everything that comes after that is going to be a result of what happens. Most of what uh, was read to us by Jonathan. But God, we're going to see throughout the text that God reveals his unrivaled power and authority first as he protects his people. As he protects his people. So as Jonathan read to us, Israel went out to battle against their neighboring enemies, the Philistines. And as we'll see throughout, it was mentioned in Judges, but then we'll see throughout uh, Samuel's narrative uh, that the Philistines are often the enemy of God during this time. Their military aggression is seen throughout uh, this time in Israel's history. In fact, the Philistines are mentioned 150 times in 1st and 2nd Samuel. We see in verses 2 and 3 that Israel was defeated before the Philistines. Right? They killed about 4,000 Israelites on the field of battle. And so when the people came back uh, to camp, the elders of Israel, well, they asked a very telling question. They asked, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? First thing is, they, they seem kind of surprised. Like, why do we lose? This maybe, in their minds, was a sure bet. And I think they rightly attribute their defeat to God's sovereignty. See, unlike the the gods of the Philistines, the God of Israel is the all-powerful deliverer. 
right? The God of Israel had rescued their ancestors, Israel's ancestors, from enslavement in Egypt, right? God had sent terrifying plagues on the Egyptians, including pests like frogs and flies and locusts. He afflicted their livestock with disease. He had caused boils to break out on the skin of the Egyptians. This only stopped once Pharaoh allowed God's people to leave and worship. They knew that God had the ability to rescue them, and so they came up with a plan. Verse 3 says that, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so we may ask, what is the ark of the Lord? Well, the ark is, if you remember, is a a wooden rectangular box that was covered in gold. Um, Beautiful, right, to look at, which we'll come back to. Uh, And God had given specific instructions about it, as well as the other furnishings within the temple. On the top were two winged cherubim facing one another, like angels facing one another. And inside, the stone tablets uh, with which God had actually written the Ten Commandments. And so you've got God's handwriting on the stone tablets that he gave Moses within the ark. The ark also had a jar of manna, a reminder of God's daily provision to their ancestors in the wilderness. It symbolized the very presence of God and was normally housed in the innermost part of the tabernacle. Then it would be housed in the temple at a later time. Exodus 25 tells us that that it was the mercy seat of the Lord where he would meet with his people and give them his word. Leviticus 16, uh, there we read how blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat as part of the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins on the day of atonement. And so it's a symbol of God's presence, his law, his mercy. It's a symbol of who God was. And there were a lot of Rules that God had placed, commandments God had placed around the ark so that the priests serving in the temple would not die. They were not to touch it with hands. It was a a symbol of God's powerful presence. Think about the Battle of Jericho, which, which would have happened maybe a few generations before this time. If you remember in the battle of Jericho, God had told Joshua to have the priests take up the ark and lead a processional around the city of all the fighting men. So they they marched around Jericho. It was a number of days. Actually, on the seventh day, they marched around the city and what happened? God uh, God caused the walls of Jericho to fall down flat. So I can't help but think that this is what the elders had in mind when they sent for the ark. And boy, it had a huge response. Right? It had a huge response. We see that the, the, the ark of the covenant comes into camp and the morale of Israel is restored. Right? They, all of Israel gave a great shout so that the earth resounded. The earthquake, there's a shout. It's just like Jericho. Oh, this is a sure thing. And so the Philistines, they, they hear this and they're terrified. What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learn that the ark of God has come into the camp, the Philistines are terrified. A God has come into the camp. The Philistines, like many of the nations at that time, 
were polytheistic. They believed that there were many gods. And it was not uncommon to believe that the different gods had different power or authority over different geographic locations. The more powerful the god, the greater the reach of their power. Kind of like Wi-Fi. Right? The closer that you are to the base, the stronger, right? A powerful god could have a long reach, but there were limits. But now they brought the god into camp. He was close, and so his power would be seen. The Philistines were terrified. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. They immediately thought of Egypt. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods, the gods who struck Egypt with every sort of plague in the wilderness? To bring a symbol, the symbol of God, or as they would believe, the God themselves into battle was a bold but calculated risk. Right? Once again, if you, if you brought your God into battle, right, there's a lot of power but you would also potentially leave your home territory less protective. And there's always the danger of losing your God. But that's not likely, right? This is, this is the God of Israel, not with the same strength of the God who defeated the Egyptians. And so the stage is set, right? The drama is ready to be unfolded. You can imagine what might have been going through these elders' minds, right? We will totally have the power to destroy them. Right? For one, we're God's people. Right? God is on our side. Nothing's going to happen to us. Number two, those guys totally have it coming, right? Because they've killed 4,000 of our guys. And they worship false gods. And number three, and maybe the biggest, is that we have the ark which means that God is actually here with us to defend us. And let's be honest, God is never going to let anything bad happen to the ark. Like if this was a stage, uh, you would hear the music, right? If this was an actual play, dun, dun, dun. this is not good news. The stage is set, but the outcome was not what the Israelites had envisioned. Verses 10 and 11 tell us, very quickly and without much drama that Israel lost the battle, but they lost much more. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated just that quick. No details of the battle, just that quick. And they fled, every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Their plan had failed. The battle was lost. Like, not only did, did they leave the battlefield, like the army just disintegrated. Everybody ran. Everybody fled to his own home. It was a very great slaughter. Through this defeat, though, I believe what God was showing Israel was that they had a wrong view of who God is. After the first military defeat, the author gives no indication that the, that the Israelites sought God on any level. Right? There's no mention of seeking God in humility, pay, uh, prayer, or repentance. God didn't show up to deliver the victory that they expected, so they, they took things into their own hands. 
It's almost like they brought together the different elements from Israel's history and thought, if, if, if we just grab a little bit of this, if we shout, right, like they did at Jericho, if we, if we bring in the ark, maybe they thought they could put together a winning combination. But the reality is that they weren't actually seeking God. They were trying to control God. At best, they were trying to appease God, Right, by getting him to, to like what they, oh, let's bring God into the situation. But at worst, and I think this is the case, that they were trying to manipulate God. But God is powerful enough to see into hearts, see into their hearts. He's powerful enough to see into our hearts and to know what we truly believe. And he knows that our greatest need even more than physical protection from our enemies, we need protection from a false understanding of who he is. He's a God who's infinite, all-knowing and ever-present. He's unrivaled in his sovereignty, his sovereign power, his authority. He's glorious, holy, and just. He's not like the foreign gods. And at the same time, he's a God who is personal and knows us intimately. Right? He's the same God who sent his son Jesus into the world. Right? Not at this time, that was to come. But for us, we need to know that same God is still our God. And he's the same God who sent Christ into the world to give his life to pay the debt for our sins that we might be reconciled to God and have everlasting life. David... Right, who has not yet come into the scene, but he was uh, described as a man after God's own heart. He knew that a right understanding and relationship with God was, was even more valuable than life itself. This is perhaps a better response of what we could have thought from um, Israel. Psalm 56, David right, has just been captured by his enemies, Philistines, and, and he writes, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. For what can flesh do to me? Right. There's a lot that flesh could have done to him. Right? David could have been killed, but he knew that it didn't compare to the security that he had in Christ, or that he had in God, and that we have in Christ. And so it is really the height of arrogance to think that, that if we just do certain things, good things, right? Like coming to church, uh, reading the Bible, then somehow doing those things will obligate, uh, obligate God to do what, give us what we want. And so it's an actually an act of grace that we see when God opposes us in our pride. And that's exactly what I think he was doing to Israel. He was opposing them because they thought that they could manipulate him as the other uh, nations around them thought. So how does God reveal his unrivaled power and authority in our lives? Well, I think he does it by protecting his people from continuing in a false faith. The same thing he was doing there, I think he does with us. 
God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We need God to protect us from our false understanding of who he is. And so when our concern is not to seek to submit to God, but to get something from him, whether that's in prayer or in our daily lives, we need to, we need to be cautious. We need to realize that we're in danger. Well, we see God opposing the pride of, of the Israelite elders. And so he brings destruction upon them. But we're going to see that it, it ends up for their good. God reveals his unrivaled power and authority as he protects his people, number one, and as he preserves his glory. Now, I got to tell you, these first two points, you're going to say, Steve, I think he's doing the opposite. Right? He didn't protect his people. And look, the glory is about to leave. If you read the, pa- if you read, uh, the passage beforehand, you would, you would know that it looks like the opposite is happening. But once again, I think by the end, we'll see that that's exactly what God is doing. In verse uh, 12, the narrative shifts then, and we, we see a man, a messenger, running 20 miles back to Shiloh to bring news of the battle. And Eli, who had uh, been the judge, and he was uh, over Israel, he was 98 years old, he was watching by the road, waiting, his heart trembling because of the ark. The text tells us that, that he was watching, but also tells us that he was blind. The news brings an uproar in the city, and the man brings the news to Eli. Chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that the man told Eli, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there, is, there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. you think that he would be devastated by this news, especially at the death of his sons. But Eli seems unmoved by the death of his two sons. Because look at verse 18. It says, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Then we see that the news is carried to uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas. It caused her, who was pregnant, it caused her to go into premature labor. And eventually she dies in the midst of childbirth. Verse 20 tells us that about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you've born a son. She did an, but she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And just to make sure that we don't miss what she means, the author tells us in verse 22, he repeats it, that she says, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. With her dying breath, she names her son Ichabod, which means something like, where is glory? Or the glory's gone. And so part of me wonders, why is it that there is not more of a response uh, at the death of, of these two, uh, Eli's two sons? And part of me wonders if both Eli and his daughter-in-law were anticipating that this day, that this day would come one day. This kind of news was eventually going to show up. 
And we see was God was fulfilling his word of judgment against Eli and his family in the deaths of these two priests. Hophni and Phinehas were Eli's wicked sons who had been serving as priests. And if we go back to 1 Samuel uh, 2.17, we see that it's described this way, that the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Their worship was wrong. They had a wrong view of God. They were stealing from the sacrifices. They were asking, instead of actually sacrificing the meat, they were saying, you know what, can you give me some of that before it's boiled? Because it doesn't taste as good once it's actually been sacrificed. Not only were they stealing, they were threatening and intimidating those who came uh, and tried to stop them, tried to stand in their way. They were bullies. And Eli kept hearing reports of their corruption, right? Including not only that, but they were sleeping with the women who were working at the temple. Eli only half-heartedly warned them, but they refused to listen. And Eli never removed them from serving in the temple. And so eventually, a man of God prophesied that God would judge Eli's family. Chapter 2, verse 34, it says, And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This shall be a sign to you that both of them shall die on the same day. And then we see God repeating a similar message uh, through uh, Samuel in chapter 3. The first time God even speaks to Samuel, he tells them, that God is going to execute justice on Eli and his family. The repeated and unrepentant life of sin that these two men pursued was dramatically brought under God's heavy hand of judgment. But in a way, we see that that judgment was also God's grace in removing these false shepherds. These false shepherds who had gotten in the way of worship who had helped to lead God's people astray. And in this judgment, we also see God's patience. It was only after many, many warnings and calls for repentance that God finally pronounced his judgment on these two wicked men. And so we, we see a warning here. We find a warning because we should ask even of ourselves, right? Are we, are you, are we pursuing sin Are you even engaging in sin in such a way in your life that it is a regular part of your life? It's what you do. It's it's who you are. Not just that we sin. We all do sin. We struggle in sin. But is this part of who you are? So maybe you've stopped fighting your sin because you've never been caught. It's the point. Uh, Maybe you know it's sin, but it, it really isn't hurting anyone. Maybe you've even been confronted, but you love your sin more than you love God. You might feel justified in pursuing your sin because you feel like God is far away from you. It might be the sin of lying. It might be the sin of cheating, whether it's school or work. It might be gossip. It might be greed, stealing, drunkenness, drugs, pornography, adultery. If you're pursuing sin as part of your regular life, I want to just tell you, right, that God is faithful, right? He will eventually bring every sin under judgment. But I also want to say that God is patient, right? He gives us time to repent often, right? He gives us warnings. 
I would encourage you to repent today while you still can. And, and finally, I would say, the greatest hope is that God is merciful because he has made a way for our sins to be forgiven in Christ. You see, if it was one sin and then these two young men were condemned to death, I mean, wouldn't we all be condemned to death at that point? If there was one sin in us then that we would have no chance to repent, we would all be dead men walking. The reality is that, that sin disrupts our relationship with God. When Eli's daughter-in-law said that the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured, she was right. And in fact, Dale Davis, uh, an author, wrote that probably she taught more theology in her death than Phineas had done in his whole life. Another author said it this way. He said that she was right, but she was wrong. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark of God had been captured because the glory had already departed. You see, with these two, uh, with this wickedness being uh, tolerated in the temple, with the people believing wrongly, with the elders uh, leading astray, uh, with not a right knowledge of God, God's glory had already left. That same author then says, though, that sometimes God must depart from us so that we might see him rightly. Wow. God must depart from us so that we might see him rightly. The reality is that God will allow us to be disappointed, to be disappointed with him if it will awaken in us the sort of God who he truly is. So sometimes something needs to be taken away so that we'll see it for what it really is. And, and I think that's what ha is happening here. That God is taking away his glory from Israel so that they will understand who he is. It seemed as though this was one of Israel's darkest hours. But God was definitely at work to preserve his glory. He removed the false shepherds who claimed to represent God. And the same ones who... Um, uh, and he was revealing uh, the true state of Israel's spiritual condition. So uh, God seemed unwilling or unable to deliver Israel. Maybe that's what the Israelites thought. But now, the very symbol of God's presence uh, being captured by the enemies, the people, they feel like they're, they're without hope. They feel like they are going to be destroyed. If the power was contained in the ark, no doubt the people of God thought, now our enemies have it. Now they can truly destroy us. And so we're, we're left, right? We're, the, the curtain closes on Israel at this point. It's, it feels hopeless. But I think, remember, we're reading the text after these events. And I think what the author is trying to show us is that, yes, it felt hopeless at that time, but God was revealing his power, his authority, as he protected his people, as he preserved his glory by removing it from Israel and sending it elsewhere for, for a time. But we see the third part uh, as we move the scene, as it, it shifts and the focus shifts over to the ark itself and we're brought into uh, the land of the Philistines, 
We see that God is showing his strength by uh, revealing that he is supreme over all things. So the scene, the scene shifts, and in, uh, we see then in uh, chapter 5 that the ark is in the temple of Dagon. The Philistines uh, take the ark as a spoil of war, which was common during that time, and they place it in the house of their pagan god, Dagon. Right? A common practice at that time. Right? We have beaten our enemy, and so we've taken their god, and we'll put their god next to our god in submission. The next morning, the people of Ashdod wake up, and they find that Dagon has somehow fallen face down on the ground before the ark of God. And if you, I don't know if you have time, but notice the shift in how the ark is referred, referred to. In fact, throughout the narrative, it's going to shift based on what's happening, right? Is it, is it the ark of the Lord? Is it the ark of God? Is it the ark of the God of Israel? But that's one of the details we don't have time to fully unpack. So what do they do? They put Dagon back in his place. And then the following morning, Dagon is face down again before the ark of the Lord. And this time his head and his hands were cut off and lying on the threshold. This is no longer a mere coincidence. Right? The God who had seemingly failed to deliver Israel in battle was now showing his power and supremacy over Dagon on his own turf, in his own temple. You see, God wasn't going to allow Israel to use the ark as a magic wand, and now he's not going to allow the Philistines to use the ark or himself as a trophy of their victory. What we see, though, in this whole narrative of the ark is that there's nobody assisting God in this work. Right? This is the ark has been placed in the temple. Israel's gone. And we see that God does not need anyone to make his glory known, to make his supremacy known. He doesn't need anyone to look after him. Right? The pagan gods needed people to, to bring in food day by day because they believed that that was how the God ate. And there are accounts where, uh, where it's shown where there, when there was no one around to, quote, feed the God, there are, I should say, legends, uh, you know, that, that the gods then would swarm on, uh, on a sacrifice because they had been starving. But no, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anyone. He is the supreme over all things. And he didn't need anyone to keep the ark safe. In fact, those rules and precautions, as I mentioned, that God gave to Moses were not because the ark was fragile, not because the ark needed protecting, but because the people handling the ark needed to be protected from the power of God and the ark itself. And so we see that God is very subtly demonstrating his power and his authority in the land of the Philistines. He is supreme over all things, like Dagon will bow to him. Not only was the Lord strong enough to humiliate and topple Dagon, didn't need anyone to accomplish it. And so at this point, you know, we were confronted with a question like, how does it make us feel to know that God doesn't need us? God doesn't need you to do work. God doesn't need your money 
God doesn't need anything that you can give to him. It's like, well, then why do we take offering? Why are there places to serve in the church? Well, we do these things right, because God allows us to participate with him in the work of ministry. Not because he needs us. I think he's showing here in the text that he doesn't need us. And yet he, from our perspective, he does use us. That's a lot of pressure taken off, right? Imagine if God needed you to do things and somehow you got sick. Somehow you just didn't feel like it. Or maybe God needed your neighbor or, or somebody else in the church to do something for you. And they didn't follow through. If you have ever served with people in the church, you know that people don't always follow through. And imagine if God's glory was diminished every time someone didn't follow through. Wouldn't take long then for us to maybe not even know who God is. But God doesn't need that. He is sovereign over all things. He is the one who preserves. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the one who, as we read in Isaiah, carries us. Well, God's subtle demonstration of power was, a, uh, was about to get a lot less subtle. We shift slightly then, and we see God's unrivaled power and authority, not only in his supremacy over all things, but now in his, the severity of his judgment. After God had cut off the, hand and, uh, the head and hands of Dagon, we read in 1 Samuel 5, 6, that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God, the ark of the God of Israel, once again, we've gone from gods, right? The gods in that other camp, those are, those are strong gods, I bet, to the ark of God. Now, talk of God of Israel. There's a, an ownership. He must not remain for us, for his hand is, is hard against us and against our God, Dagon. Philistines are realizing not only do they need to protect themselves against God, the God of Israel, they need to protect their God from the God of Israel. The Philistines were beginning to understand that the God of Israel was more dangerous than they had thought. The imagery of, of Dagon's head and hands being cut off, it was a symbol at that time of total military victory. If you can imagine why that might have come into being, right? if you cut off the hands of your enemy, maybe, and display those. That would show how much more powerful you are. It's a common practice. Won't go into that. But, the, but now God has cut off the hands of Dagon, and yet his hand is hard against them. The Philistines will then move the ark from city to city, and each time the arrival of the ark brought more disease and death. God was clearly revealing himself through his heavy hand of judgment and his reputation was spreading among God's enemies. We read then in, in uh, 5.10 that they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They brought around the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And in 11, they say, send Away the ark of God, uh, the ark of the God of Israel, and let it be returned to its own place, that it may not kill us any more. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city; the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. 
The Philistines were clearly defeated by God. Israel's God was greater. He was stronger. He could conquer them. The power of God could not be controlled. It could not be contained. The severity of God's judgment was too severe. There was only one thing to do. Send, send it back. Just get rid of it. Send it back to Israel. And so they do. They send it back. They come up with a plan. The Philistines aren't sure what to do. So what do they do? They, they consult their own priests and has, ask, how it should, uh, ask how it should be sent back. And they come up with a plan. So, so think about the, the contrast here. The elders of Israel say, hey, just go get, go get the ark. Bring that here. What do the Philistines do? They're terrified of God. So they ask their own priests, what should we do? They're looking for direction from those who uh, would be able to give them spiritual counsel. And they say, don't send it back by itself. They said, make sure you include, the text tells us, a guilt offering. The Philistines know that, that they're guilty. They need to put a guilt offering as they send this ark back. Golden images of their tumors and of the mice that had been ravaging their land. 6.5 tells us that, So you must make images of your tumors and the images of your, mite, of your mice that ravage your land and give glory to the God of Israel. Look at that. The glory had departed from Israel, and that's what was said now it's seen, it is spoken of by the, the priests of Dagon. Give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaohs harden their hearts? So notice what a contrast with Israel. Eli and his sons would not repent of their sins. They did not give glory to God, so God removed the ark from their presence. But now these pagan priests were calling their people to make a guilt offering and to give glory to God. It's also striking that the prayer uh, that is mentioned at the very end, um, or it says that their cries went up to heaven. That's, that's very similar wording uh, to Israel when they cried out in slavery in Egypt almost as if the author wants us to see that maybe even these Philistines were crying out to God, were praying to him for help, for deliverance. The Philistines, or at least I should say the priests, they were mostly sure. They were mostly sure that the God of Israel was the one to receive the credit. But they wanted to make one more attempt to find out the truth. So they set up a test. They would send back the ark, but they would send it back by way of, of uh, two milk cows. They said, take two milk cows uh, that have never been under a yoke, put a yoke on them, attach that to a cart that would carry the box with a guilt offering, and then take away their calves, right? And, and take them away and put them at, at home. For Samuel 6, 8 through 10, sorry, 8 and 9 says, And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in the box at its side, uh, I'm sorry, in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. 
If it goes up by the way of it, uh, to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we'll know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. I'm going to tell you, you don't need to be a dairy farmer, I don't think, to know that right, you take these cows that have never worn a yoke and then you take away their calves, where are they going to go? Are they going to go to the foreign land or are they going to go back to their calves? Well, we might ask, right? So they've set up this, this challenge. And we might ask, why was it that, that God took such great pains to reveal himself to, this way to the, the Philistines? Right? They're the enemies of God. Why? He could have just destroyed them. Right? He, he could have just let the ark sit in Dagon's temple. Why did he go through all of this to bring them to the point where they're bringing glory to God? I think that we're meant to see that if God revealed himself to even the enemies of Israel, perhaps he might not be totally adverse to one day bringing near those who are far off by the blood of the Messiah. Right? Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians to the Gentile Christians? He says, remember, this is Ephesians 2, 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So even through his judgments, even through the severity of God's power against his enemies, we see glimpses of gospel hope. God reveals his unrivaled power and authority and the severity of his judgments and then finally in the holiness of his great, great name. Well, the cows, they went back. They went back to Beth Shemesh. The lords of the Philistines followed and they watched and the text tells us that the cows never went left or right. Five lords of the Philistines watched as the people of Beth Shemesh rejo uh, rejoiced at seeing the return of the ark. They watched as, as those same people offered burnt offerings and sacrifices uh, on, the day, on that day to the Lord. So we're left with a question, right? The question that we're left with is, is how will these Philistines respond? Right? They've witnessed the unrivaled power and authority of God. Right? He showed himself to be supreme over their deity that they had worshipped. He, he showed himself to be active and working through the severity of his judgments. Dale Davis writes, Should they not turn and at least begin to serve or, or fear this obviously real and living God? Or will they just go back to Ashdod and take Dagon to the local image shop for repairs? Perhaps the majority of them just simply sighed. So glad that that's over. How do we respond, right? When God obviously shows himself to us through difficulty, pain, or tragedy, 
Do we simply want to go back to our old ways? Are we just simply glad somehow that, that the pain is over? Or do we try and understand if God is showing us who he is in greater ways? Well, you already know that the Philistines are the enemies of Israel throughout First and Second Samuel. So they don't come to repentance. In fact, the next time we'll run into them, they're going to try and destroy Israel once again. And it's a good reminder to us that we don't have the power to convince people to come to Christ. It doesn't matter what we show them, right? It doesn't, doesn't matter if they have, uh, if they've seen the goodness of God. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't share the gospel. We're called to share the gospel and God uses us as we share the gospel. And we can witness to God's goodness in our lives. But just because a person hears the gospel and sees evidence of Christ at work in your life, even if they come to church, even if they grew up in a Christian home where, or a home where Christ is honored, God is the one who has to do the work in their hearts. And so it is God that we should be pleading with uh, on behalf of our unbelieving friends and family. We're not going to be the ones to convince them. Only God is. And I think this example also shows us that just because someone has received all of those benefits doesn't mean that they will necessarily come to saving faith. It's heartbreaking. And yet, we see it, we ought to see it, as, as an amazing testimony of grace. Why us? Why would he have mercy on us? Because aren't we just as sinful as the Philistines? Just as unbelieving, and if we see ourselves rightly, we know that just like unbelieving Israel and unbelieving Philistines, we too are not worthy to stand before a holy God. Not by ourselves. Well, we pick up the narrative back in in verse 19, where the ark has come back to Israel. So we see that it's time to rejoice. The glory of God has returned. We read in verse 19 that God, though, did something surprising. Verse 19 says that God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They struck seven, he struck 70 of the men. And the people mourned because the, because the Lord had struck the people a great blow. You see, God had one more lesson, or at least one more lesson, for Israel. Verse 20 says that then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before God, this holy God? And who, to whom shall he go up away from us? The first question is absolutely right. The first question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They understood that it is indeed dangerous to be in the presence of a holy God. And that none of us, none of them, none of us are able to do so on our own. It is only by the blood of Christ. We need to keep our own arrogance in check. Right? Through his absence... Right? Maybe God created a desire back in the people of Israel so that they rejoiced when the ark came back. They seemed kind of ready, but 
they weren't fully prepared. So God showed him his holiness. But the second question shows that they did not understand. And the NIV, I think, renders it maybe a little bit more helpfully. To whom or to where will the ark of, shall we send the ark of God from here? In other words, their response was not that much different than the Philistines. We've got to get this thing out of here. We've got to get rid of it. How do we get rid of the ark? And I think that's the response that we find in, from an unbelieving world, from an unbelieving heart, right? If God is holy, then I don't want him. If he's not my buddy, I reject him. But the answer to the question is, who is able to stand before a holy God? Well, the only, we know the, the only answer is Christ. And as believers, we know that he is the one who stands in our place. His righteousness is what allows us to come before God. But it doesn't mean that God is our buddy. It doesn't mean that he's tame. But just because God is dangerous doesn't mean that we cannot be intimate with him. It means that we cannot be familiar with him. So intimacy uh, allows us to call God Father and tremble at the same time. As it trembles, uh, and, and, and trembling, we know that we are loved. So let's not make the same mistake that Israel made. God shows us himself that, that we might know him, know him rightly, that we might trust him for who he is, that we might worship him. Let us not ever fall into the danger of forgetting that we cannot come before a holy God without Christ. He protects us from unbelief and wrong belief. He uses not necessarily withdrawing his glory or causing us to lose battles. But what does he do? He, he puts us in the church. He gives us one another that we might encourage one another to keep believing right things. He preserves our, his glory even in the midst of our disappointments. Sometimes it feels like God is far away, but often that is the most uh, evident when we are caught in sin. And yet he tells us that we can turn uh, and he is right there to receive us. God reminds us, we see in Christ that he is supreme over all things. Every knee shall bow before him. He's severe in his judgments. Apart from him, what we, should what we should rightly receive is condemnation and eternal wrath forever. We should know that of the holiness of his great name, God reveals himself to us that we might worship him. Sometimes our circumstances can seem overwhelming. God gives us his word so that we might worship him. God reveals his unrivaled power and authority to us. And we should worship him because he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot in this text. And I pray that you would help us to keep in mind the truths of who you are. Protect us from arrogance. And I pray you would give us a softening of heart toward you. 
So Lord, I pray that you would use your word in our lives, that you would use each other in our lives to encourage us in the truth, to encourage us in worship. And I pray that Christ might be made much of, both here in our midst and in our hearts, in our lives, our attitudes, that we might say no to sin and yes to pursuing you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.